Hey, Crimeaholics, it's Kenzie here, and I am bringing you another brand new episode of Crimeaholics. Over the next 30 days, Holly and I have dedicated ourselves to the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women movement. If you have not had the opportunity yet, I highly recommend going back and listening to our MMIW episodes on Ashley Loring Heavy Runner, Selena Not Afraid, and Larissa Lonehill. We have decided to cover this topic due to the fact that MMIW cases are getting very little to no publicity and the majority of them are going cold. According to the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native American Women, the U.S. Department of Justice found that Native American women face murder rates at 10 times higher than the national average. Nearly 6,000 cases of missing Native women have been reported, but only 116 have been logged into the DOJ database. 96% of sexual violence committed against Native American women is committed by non-Natives. Over the next 30 days, it is our mission to shed light on an epidemic that is plaguing Native American women in North America. This next episode actually holds a really special place in my heart. Due to that and the magnitude of violence in this case, I found myself having to stop to be able to collect my thoughts and my feelings in order to continue research and even recording her episode. This next MMIW episode is the story of Candace Rough Surface. Candace Roughsurface was born on October 18, 1961, to Daniel and Alberta Roughsurface. Candace often went by the nickname of Candy, and at the time of her death, she was only 18 years old. Candy Roughsurface grew up on the Standing Rock Reservation in South Dakota. The Standing Rock Reservation is in northern South Dakota and southern North Dakota, and it covers over 3,000 miles of land. On the reservation, Candy and her family lived in a small town called Kennel. Kennel is a small rural area where everyone knew everybody. Candy attended school on the Standing Rock Reservation, but she ended up having to drop out of school her sophomore year when she gave birth to her son, Homer. Homer's father, Tony Eagle, actually ended up leaving Candy shortly after Homer's birth, which left her as a young single mother. But according to Candy's family, she was actually okay with this. She knew that she was going to be able to raise Homer on her own with no problems. At the time of her murder, Candy and Homer were living with her mother, Alberta, who helped take care of Homer while Candy was working at a college in Mobridge and working towards her high school diploma. The Standing Rock Reservation actually runs along the Missouri River. And a bridge connects the reservation to Mobridge, the town where Candy had worked, which is right outside the reservation. According to the Washington Post, Mobridge was a predominantly white town during this time, and there was a lot of prejudice against the Lakota Native Americans. A statement made by Candy's nephew, Sean Silbernagel, stated, During this time, Mobridge could be compared to the Jim Crow South and that there was a major racial divide. On August 2nd, 1980, Candy had attended work that day as usual, and when she got off of work, she had cashed her paycheck and headed home to see her son Homer. After spending some time with her son Homer, just like most teenagers, she wanted to go spend some time with her friends. Candy decided to have a girls' night with her sister Clara out in Mobridge. According to the Washington Post, Candy drove over to the town of Mobridge with Clara, and she ends up dropping Candy off on Main Street, and she stated that she lost track of Candy pretty quickly. Unfortunately, little did Clara know 
that this would be the very last time she would ever see her little sister alive. The next day on August 3rd, 1980, when Alberta had ended up noticing that Candy never came home, she had got a hold of Clara to find out where she was. According to one of Candy's sisters, there was times before when Candy would go out with her friends and she would end up staying the night but would always return home the next morning. And this is not unusual for teenagers whatsoever. And it's not unusual just because Candy was a mom. As time went on and she never came home, her mother, Alberta, ended up becoming extremely concerned. Clara has stated that she figured that Candy had gotten a ride home that evening from a friend. Candy's sister and her decided that they would drive around the town of Kennel to see if Candy had maybe been with friends that night. But no signs of Candy ended up emerging. Two girls that went to school with Candy had been asked by her sisters if they had seen her out the night of August 2nd. The two girls had ended up stating that they had actually seen Candy in Mowbridge at this place called the Joker's Wild. The Joker's Wild was a very popular bar in Mowbridge that was known for giving alcohol to underage teenagers. According to Candy's sisters, this bar was very run down and a lot of sketchy people often hung out at this bar. On Monday, August 5th in 1980, with absolutely no leads or any answers to the whereabouts of Candy, her family ends up deciding to go to the Mowbridge Police Department to file a missing persons report. According to Candy's nephew, Sean, it was pretty typical to be treated poorly by the citizens of Mowbridge so they were not shocked at all when the police were no help to her family whatsoever. When her family first went to the Mowbridge Police Department, they were basically told that there wasn't anything they could do. The Mowbridge Police Department ends up telling Candy's family that this is a common occurrence for Lakota women to go missing and that they actually are never really missing and that they end up just running away. So they were instructed to basically just sit and wait for Candy to show up. But Candy's family was so insistent that something bad had happened to her that they refused to go anywhere until the police actually did their job. According to the New York Times, Candy's family stated that even though the police were investigating her death, they were not aggressive enough in finding out what had actually happened to her. They felt that if Candy had been a white girl, more efforts would have been taken, and I do not disagree with that statement. It is extremely true. Over time, as always with missing and murdered Indigenous women cases, Candy's missing person case ends up going cold. There had been some tips stating that Candy had been seen in Minnesota and a few other surrounding areas, but nothing had ever come of it. Homer's father, Tony, was questioned in her disappearance, but Tommy ended up having a strong alibi for that evening. In the initial beginning stages of Candy's disappearance, her friends and family and law enforcement did hold searches, but nothing ever came of that either. It was literally as if Candy had just disappeared into thin air. That was until nine months after August 2nd, Candy's body would be found. According to the Washington Post, nine months later in May of 1981, Walworth County Sheriff Jim Spirey ends up receiving a call that a badly decomposed body was found along the Missouri River in thick mud in South Dakota. When Sheriff Spirey went out to the location, he was told by a ranch handler, Steve Helton, that he was out inspecting the ranch owner's cattle when he came across the body. As the sheriff was checking out the body, he ends up finding a broken pair of prescription glasses, and on the inside of these glasses, it was carved. Candace, rough surface. The Washington Post has stated that the sheriff ends up asking Steve if he had ever met Candy and Steve ends up denying him ever meeting her. Sheriff Spirey had stated, by looking at her body, it was evident that Candace had been shot in the head several times, and once they did the autopsy, it was determined 
that Candy's cause of death was five shots to the head with a twenty-two caliber gun. Not only was Candy shot to death, the autopsy ends up showing that Candy was badly beaten and sexually assaulted. And of course, even with Candy's body in the autopsy, somehow her now homicide case continued to go cold. The Mobridge Police Department has stated that they tried to question several people in Mobridge about Candy, but everyone pretty much had stayed tight-lipped and refused to talk to them. Candy's family has stated they felt even after her body was found, the Mobridge Police Department did very little to help her further her investigation. The Mobridge PD even ended up receiving help from the feds, but still even with their help, nothing was happening in their investigation and Candy's case again would go cold. Her case went cold for another 15 years until the police finally got a credible lead. According to the Washington Post, a Wisconsin Police Department ended up getting the call that the Mobridge Police Department had been waiting for. In October of 1995, a woman in Wisconsin had called her local police department and told them that her son-in-law had told her daughter and several other people over the years that him and his cousin had beaten, raped, and murdered a Lakota woman back in 1980. This man's name is James Stroh II and his cousin's name is Nicholas Shear. At the time, James's mother-in-law ends up calling, him and his wife are going through a really bitter divorce. Which makes me kind of wonder, if these two were never going through this divorce, would his mother-in-law have actually even called the police? James Stroh's father and his family were originally from Mobridge, but he had moved them to Wisconsin at some point in James's childhood. The Shears and the Strohs were both big-name families in Mobridge. Nick Shear's two older brothers were in the Olympic Games and ended up winning medals, which prompted the leaders of Mowbridge to name the sports arena after the Shears family. It was called the Shears Howe Sports Arena. Howe was a local native artist who had painted murals that actually ended up lining the walls of the arena. However, even though James's family had lived in Wisconsin, they would often go back to Mowbridge and visit. James would eventually be questioned by the feds, and he ends up telling them exactly what happened on that horrible night of August 2nd, 1980. According to the New York Times, James has stated that August 2nd was his last night in town, and his cousin Nick wanted to take him out. At the time, James was 16, and Nick was only 15. The two ended up going to the Joker's Wild, the same bar where Candy had been that night. James has stated that Nick knew Candy because he went to school with her older cousin and the three of them end up hanging out. James has said him and Nick decided to leave the bar to attend a party in a nearby pasture and invited Candy to go with him. Candy's family has stated that they believe the only reason that Candy went with the two boys was because her cousin knew Nick and she thought that she could trust them and that she would be safe. James ends up telling police that the person who threw this party was Steve Helton the same man that found Candy's body. He continues to tell police that Nick was trying to flirt with Candy, but she wasn't having any of it, and she ends up asking the boys to drive her home back to her house and kennel. James stated that the three of them jump into Nick's truck, and with Candy in the middle of them, Nick tried again to flirt with her, and he actually began touching her, and Candy would get super upset and began to yell and hit both of them and tell Nick that if he didn't stop, she would tell everybody what he was doing. According to James, this ended up infuriating Nick, and he lost it. He ends up pulling over his pickup truck and dragging Candy out of the truck, 
And James tells police that Nick began striking Candy in the face with his fist just over and over. Not only is Nick repeatedly striking her, he began to sexually assault Candy in the grass near his truck. After he sexually assaulted Candy, James stated that his cousin Nick forced him to also sexually assault her, and he states that supposedly he did it because he was scared for his life. James told the police after they both sexually assaulted Candy, Nick goes into his truck and grabs a gun, and he ends up shooting Candy in the back of the head four times and then forces James to shoot her for the fifth time. Nick told James that he did not want to get any blood in or on his truck, so Nick decided to very savagely chain Candy to the bumper of his truck and drag her body while he drove to the location where the two put her body. As I researched Candy's case, and even now talk about what these savage animals did to her, it has left me completely speechless and with knots in my stomach. I will never understand, ever, how a human being could do something so horrible and vile to another human being. James would end up agreeing to testify against his cousin in court. James would end up being charged with second-degree murder, but somehow this disgusting animal ends up getting away with sexual assault. James would end up only being sentenced to 15 years as part of his plea deal and is already out of prison. Yes, that's right, I said, already out of prison. Nick Shear, who originally pleaded not guilty, ends up pleading guilty the day before his trial just so he can avoid the death penalty. Nick's defense lawyer had made the statement that he truly believes that Nick is innocent and this whole ordeal has been really hard on his family. I'm sorry, it's been hard on his family? What about Candy's family? What about her son who had to grow up without his mother? What about her entire family and what the community has gone through? When I read that statement, I was completely disgusted. The judge ended up sending Nick Shear to 100 years in prison, but Nick Shear ends up only spending 23 years of his 100-year sentence and was released on parole this last year in 2019. How in the actual hell is that justice? These savage monsters should have never been released back into our society. I am a firm believer that some criminals can be rehabilitated, but I do not believe for one second that somebody who takes another person's life in cold blood can be rehabilitated and released back into our society. James Stroh has since moved back to Wisconsin and Nick Shear was released and living in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, according to the Rapid City Journal. Sioux Falls is actually only a five-hour drive from where Holly and I live here in South Dakota. The Aberdeen News actually interviewed Candy's son, Homer, who made the statement that he was never notified that the man who sexually assaulted and murdered his mother was set to be released on parole. He was never even notified of his parole hearing and that the last time he actually attended Cher's parole hearing was when he was just a teenager and at the time he was denied parole and he believed that Cher was never going to be released from prison. So it became a huge shock to him, his family, and the Lakota community when he was released. According to Dakota News Now, in May of 2019, many different organizations joined Homer in a remembrance walk for Candy before the release of Sheer. Homer stated that he plans to help with other cases like his mother's and he wants to be a part of a change. Candace Rough Surface is just one of thousands of cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women who never got justice. 
I cannot stress enough, as a society, it is our responsibility to make a change in these cases. Criminalholics, we are calling on you to help be the voice for missing and murdered Indigenous women to help shed light on this epidemic. If you haven't yet, I encourage you to join our Criminalholics podcast discussion group on Facebook or follow us on Instagram where we will be sharing information on how you can help spread information on the MMIW movement. Even after these 30 days are over, I promise that Holly and I will continue to advocate for the MMIW movement and continue to be the voice for the voiceless. And we are asking each and every one of you listening over the next 30 days to do the same. Crimeaholics, as always, be aware and take care.